everyone. This is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome to our newest podcast, Striker Talks. Few companies in the medical device industry touch the entire spectrum of healthcare like Striker. From accident scenes to ERs, from ORs to patient rooms, Striker delivers the supplies, tools, and devices used to provide patients with the highest quality of care. In this podcast, we'll talk with the company's leaders to gain a better understanding of how innovation, new technologies, and teamwork will further Striker's mission. Let's go. Hi, everyone. This is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome back to the Striker Talks podcast. This podcast episode is brought to you by Resonetics, and it was a great conversation. I had a great conversation with Mark Paul the president of neurovascular. Uh, Mark's got a, a lot of enthusiasm and intimate knowledge of the space, and that comes through in this conversation. We'll talk about where neurovascular is headed, how things like robotics and AI will figure into the development of new tools, and how we will uh, extend the uh, current golden age of neurovascular that Mark says we are in. He also has an interesting career path uh, into the medical device industry, so you'll hear that and uh, about his uh, equally interesting transition from Boston Scientific to Stryker. So great conversation with Mark Paul. I know you will enjoy this episode of Stryker Talks. But before we begin, I'd like to bring in our sponsor, Resonetics. I'm speaking with Kevin Hartke. Kevin is the Chief Technology Officer at Resonetics. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Tell us a bit about Resonetics. Yeah, Resonetics is headquartered in Nashville, New Hampshire, uh, with a total of 11 locations across the U.S., Costa Rica, Switzerland, and Israel. We have 1,300 plus team members with over 10% of those individuals holding a technical degree. Uh, We are 100% focused on the medtech market, and we provide industry-leading advanced engineering and manufacturing solutions in raw material, components, and sub-assemblies. And our technology focus is in thin wall stainless steel tubing and precious metal marker bands, Uh, We provide services in laser processing, nitinol processing, metal fabrication, and smart device sensors. Uh, We provide additional capability and services in complete device design and development, and also finished clean room assembly. And then finally, we have an in-house automated solutions group, which designs and manufactures all of our own capital equipment. All right, we'll hear more from Kevin Hartke a little later in the podcast. If you want to find out more information about Resonetics, go to Resonetics. And now let's begin my conversation with Mark Paul, the president of Neurovascular at Stryker. Well, Mark Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here, Tom. I I really appreciate you inviting me on your uh, your podcast program. Happy to have you here. Happy to learn that you're a a Massachusetts guy at some point in your career. And we can maybe uh, track back to that because this is the, the point of the podcast where I do like to find out how folks found their way into, into the medtech industry. So what was your first medtech job? You know, my first medtech job was actually Meditech before Boston Scientific went public. And uh, so it was still a very small division. I think I was the 39th salesperson uh, wow. in the organization. And uh, it, was, it was a different world in my prior world in Procter & Gamble. But at the time, uh, Boston Scientific was very intrigued with 
men and women who have been trained by Procter and Gamble and, and look to bring them into the med tech industry. So that's how I got started. Interesting. I think I read somewhere that you sort of had a, an interesting moment where you decided you wanted to switch from Procter and Gamble and consumer to, to med tech. Uh, what, what caused you to make that switch? You know, it, it was quite dramatic. I, by the way, Procter and Gamble, probably one of, the, one of the best companies on earth. I still love them. I still follow them. And they trained or they still train their people so well. But uh, it was the birth of my first child, our son. I uh, was being born and it was emergency C-section and I'd never been in the OR environment before and they wheel you in and they put you behind this blue curtain and here's your wife's head and the anesthesiologist and you smashed behind this, this blue curtain. But uh, I'm naturally very curious and I'm very brave and, and I love new environments. So I, I stood up and watched. Wow. And, you know, in that environment, you've never been in it before. You don't know if you'll get sick or if you get nauseous or how you'll do, but I, I loved it. And I so loved it. It actually uh, changed my whole trajectory of, of my career and where we lived as a family and everything we did post that environment. I, I, after I watched that procedure and the tools that were used and the doctor's technique, and I was asking him anatomical lessons, like, hey, what's this? What's that? Why are you doing this? And if he would have let me, Tom, I would have scrubbed in and, and <laughs> moved around the other side of the curtain. My wife was not happy. About I was going to ask that. I was wondering if I should ask that question or not, because I've gone through a similar situation. And I'm yeah, pretty sure. and to make it even worse, she's a labor <laughs> delivery nurse and this her, her doctor and her team. And so I was asking all sorts of questions. And, uh, but, you know, after that event, I, I thought, well, maybe I should go back to medical school. And I thought I was too old at the time. Oh, interesting. And uh, so I thought, well, I, I wonder if there's the business side of medicine. And it was soon after that, uh, that recruiters called from, from the then Meditech, now Boston Scientific. And, and my answer was, I've been waiting for the call. And uh, remember, this is before Google, you couldn't reach out to companies, there was no internet. And, right. Uh, I hate to say that it probably dates me a bit. But I was so excited. And I did this day in the field. And I remember telling the recruiters, I'm ready. And I'm ready now, and I can't get started fast enough. And that's that's what started me onto this this mission into uh, med tech, that I can't imagine doing anything else in my life besides uh, in this area. You mentioned a medical school. You, you, I think you said you felt you were too old at, at the time. Do you still feel that that would have been tough to transition at that point, or do you have any regrets? Yeah, maybe. I uh, I've tried to live vicariously as I've tried to push my kids towards <laughs> different <laughs> things, uh, but I I would have loved to have been a clinician and a, a neurosurgeon. I would, have, I, would, I would have loved it. But on the other hand, in my, my position today, and, and we have products in over 70 countries around the world, I work with the best neurosurgeons on earth. These are fantastic men and women. They're so talented. And I think of all the products and units we, we ship around the world and, and the impact that has, it actually has a greater impact than I probably could do as a single physician somewhere. So you were, you were with Boston Scientific through the acquisition by Stryker, correct? Yes, I was with Boston Scientific for 21 years. Mm -hmm. uh, fantastic company. After their acquisition of Guidant, they weren't able to fund and invest in all their businesses. And so it was decided to sell my division. So I led the effort to sell our division. Uh, Stryker won the day. And uh, I chose to stay with my team and, and join the, the Stryker family about 10 years ago. What was that transition like? That's an interesting one. It was very different. Uh, cultures are very different. Uh, we did find, though, that our, our culture and my division flourished in the striker uh, environment, uh, because the divisions all behave and work autonomously from each other. Um, Boston Scientific was an extremely well-run company. They're fantastic people with a lot of talent, but the divisions were kind of run more 
in a, a unit with divisions all together, and, and it was a matrix structure around a matrix structure. When we joined uh, Stryker, it's very different. They said, well, here's your top line revenue and here's your bottom line operating income. Mark, everything in between is for you and your team to figure out. You just need to deliver your results. And by the way, we're going to fund you. And we think that you've been held back from doing, reaching your full potential as a division. And they funded us and we took off. Wow. It was, it was fantastic. I can imagine how freeing that must be, but do you have any examples of maybe not specific examples, but what was the difference in culture life? And again, not trying to shine any shade or cast any shade on the bus scientific and how they were doing. This is different. What is it like working under those two sort of different operating strategies? You know, if I could give you a, a strange analogy. I would take a quick break to speak with Kevin Hartke of Resonetics. Kevin, how does Resonetics help companies in the R&D space? And what are you doing to help development engineers? Yes, Tom. So we offer development engineers access to our Lightspeed Lab. And the Lightspeed Lab provides quick turn prototyping services, employing over 100 engineers and technicians with dedicated processing and support equipment across nine locations. But the primary focus of this team is to shorten the design cycle. And we do this through engineer to engineer communication, quick turn quoting, and prototype delivery. And if your device development is successful and requires volume manufacturing, we provide a direct path to production through our phase gate transfer process. And finally, I know Resonetics has invested heavily in developing new technologies, but what are some of the unique capabilities that you're working on that will benefit the metal device industry? Yeah, Tom, I'd like to highlight a few of our latest technology developments that support the neurovascular market. Now, the first is microblate 3D laser machining. This technology employs state-of-the-art ultra-fast lasers and enables the fabrication of 3D components that are on the scale of a grain of rice. So we can make these really small components in a wide range of material options that are including nitinol, precious metals, stainless steels, and most polymers. Now, the second technology I'd like to highlight is nitinol processing. Now, this technology has been around MedTech for quite a while, but we have developed a set of next-generation tools through our automated solution group that really push this forward and give us the customer a next-generation or next level of capability. The first uh, tool in that tool set is the ultra-fast laser cutting system that provides near-net-shaped parts with no thermal damage and minimizes downstream processing. So we support heat setting with automated liquid salt baths, and they provide superior heat set parameters and really tight control on material AF transition temperatures. And finally, we have automated electropolishing, which enables optimized throughput and really good process control. Now, in addition to the 3D microblade and nitinol processing, we have other technologies and capabilities that support the neurovascular market. And these include laser cut tubing, which support customized catheter delivery systems, centerless grinding, which support guide wire and delivery system components, and laser welding, which provide precise assembly and joining of implants and delivery systems. Well, thanks, Kevin Hartke, for joining us. And of course, thank you to Resonetics for sponsoring this episode of Striker Talks. If you'd like to find out more information about Resonetics, go to Resonetics.com. But what was the difference in culture life? And again, not trying to shine any shade or cast any shade on the bus scientific and how they were doing. This is different. What is it like working under those two sort of different operating strategies? 
you know, if I could give you a, a strange analogy, and maybe this comes from my Procter & Gamble days, if I could use Boston Scientific ran like a really good grocery store. Mm-hmm. And each aisle was a different division. They were very efficient. You had folks that built your product. They had folks that stocked your shelves. I think they had 66 cash registers, one for each country. And a customer could amazingly shop between all aisles, go to that one cash register, it would all ship out to the account. It was very efficient. But you also lost control in there. You had to seek a lot of approvals from the matrix structure. You had to fight for your funding. And when there was no funding, it was just very difficult to proceed as a division. But basically what Boston Scientific did after they'd gotten days, they needed cash. They sold aisle three and I was in essence to continue on with my bad analogy, but they took aisle <laughs> three and they, they took it out in the parking lot and they set it down and they said, thank you very much, Stryker, here you go. And they shut their door. And then we, we had to take our division and turn it into a standalone unit. Now, to continue on with my analogy, Stryker works like a really cool shopping mall. Every single division is a different business. And we're all, we're all within that Stryker family. That's the Stryker name is across that building. But you have orthopedics and you have instruments, you have beds, uh, you have medical, CMF, and these amazing divisions. But that we run all very independently. And we do this so that we can stay ultimately very close to the customer. So my mission is to bolt to the side of my customer, understand their needs, and succeed in creating the products and clinical data they need to treat their patients. And that's the focus. And so we had to redesign our division from a matrix structure supported division to a standalone business unit. But, you know, Tom, it it was refreshing. Mm -hmm. It was refreshing to have that autonomy. It was refreshing to have the funding. And it was refreshing to say, here's our course. We're going to chart our strategy and we're going to go out and execute and do what we say. That's great. And that's a great analogy. I was, when you said supermarket, I was thinking, well, I wonder if he's going to go with shopping mall. And it's, it, I think it's a very, very clever way to put it. Talk a bit about your portfolio. What, what is uh, the neurovascular business sell? Well, we, you know, just to give you a little bit of historical context, my division uh, started the neurovascular industry. It was the very first startup that was called Target Therapeutics, the Boston Scientific bought it in the early days. So my team and many of my same employees are still with us. We invented the very first catheters and wires and coils and balloons and stents that would come into your femoral artery into the brain. So we were the first and only company. Over that time, we have many competitors. They're very good. They do a good job in developing great products as well. Our portfolio mainly exists of these core products that have, that have put us on the map as pioneers and innovators today. We have the Target detachable coil. It's the number one selling coil in almost every single country in the world. It's a fantastic product, and our physicians rely upon it every day. We have wires and catheters, the synchro wire, the SL10 that get you from the leg or now from the wrist deep into the brain. Uh, we have the Evolve or, or Surpass Evolve flow diverting stent, which is a world-class flow diverting stent, a whole new way to treat aneurysms. And then on the ischemic side, we have our Trevo NXT, our access products and balloons and, and aspiration catheters for that type of procedure. So we're a full bag offering, and we try to have the number one or number two performing technology in every category of our devices. And let's talk a, a bit about uh, about your locations. When we Before I started recording this, you mentioned that you have a new plant in, in Salt Lake City. Where are your businesses located across the globe? Yeah, our headquarters are still in the original buildings where, where Neurovention started. So it's kind of cool wow. from a historical perspective. So Fremont, California yeah, remains our, our world headquarters. 
Many of our functions uh, are certainly there. We have uh, two kind of mega facilities that build our products. We have a big facility here in Salt Lake City, where I now operate from, and we have a big facility in Cork, Ireland. And then we have our international uh, sales office in Paris, France, and in Amsterdam. Uh, and then we have sales offices in our 70 countries around the world. Let's talk about the uniqueness of the neurovascular space. Uh, I mean, I think it's uh, time is of an essence, I think, for most medical device specialties, but I think for stroke, most of all. Talk a bit about the stroke market, about strokes. What are doctors working against when a patient sort of shows a sign of stroke? Let's, let's start there, and then we can kind of work into what this means for your business and how it's perhaps different from others. Yeah, let's back up. You know, stroke is a very complex disease. And so I try to really simplify it so folks can really understand how it means. But in essence, there's two different kinds of strokes. There's a bleed or a hemorrhagic, or there's a, there's a clot. We do a thrombectomy. And so basically you have a blockage or you have a leakage. So if you think of your brain with plumbing, your arteries and veins being the plumbing, we're just micro plumbers. Now, the, the arteries we play in are very small and we come in remotely from the body and we have to work our way up there. But the anatomy is complex. The patient's overall health is complex. The steps of the procedure are complex. How we do the procedure is complex. So there's in neurovascular, there's just complexity because you're up in the brain and there's no room for error in that space. So when you, when you look at stroke, stroke means there's a disruption of oxygenated blood flow to the brain. That's what it means. And it can either be because there's a bleed, an aneurysm that's ruptured, or there's a clot. You've thrown a clot somewhere from your heart, and it's ended up in a stopping oxygenated blood flow from getting to the right place in the brain. So when you have a stroke, it's, it's catastrophic. You start losing 2 million neurons a minute. Wow. Once that part of the penumbra dies, Tom, it never comes back. So it's all acute, and speed is the essence. Getting to the right hospital for care with the right physicians, with the right tools, you can still have a good outcome. But if you miss that treatment window or you go to the wrong hospital that doesn't treat stroke or someone finds you too late for treatment, it can be catastrophic for the patient and their families. How, how wide is that window? Well, because of our dawn trial, it's now 24 hours. You know, it used to be for the last hundred plus years, everybody thought your brain was dead around six hours. And then our physicians started to push that to six to eight hours. But as we were treating ischemic stroke, you know, they would say, hey, this patient came in and they, it was a wake-up stroke. So it happened when they were, um, they were asleep. So I don't know when it started. So I don't mm. know how to count the time. But they would have a story. This was a, a young mother with young children, or it was a beloved surgeon in the hospital. So I went ahead and treated them. And I pulled that clot out with your Trevo. And they had a really good outcome. So we started to identify, hey, there's a broader window here. And there's a broader window because, you know, you have your two carotids that come up and your vertebrals in the back and you have a circle of willis in the middle of the brain. So your blood is being allocated around the brain from different uh, approaches. So we decided to do the DAWN study, D-A-W-N, and we tested strokes out to 24 hours. So pretty brave clinical trial. And the results were fantastic. It showed a 35.5% absolute benefit. And what we proved is if you can get that clot out, even if it's been into the later hours, the patient will have a better outcome than if they didn't get treated at all in the medical management arm. So getting the clot out matters, but getting the clot out as soon as possible matters most. 
And uh, so that, that study and some other studies that followed after that have changed the indications and treatment guidelines for stroke in all 70 countries around the world. And we're very proud of that accomplishment. And by the way, it raised the boats for all industry and all physicians, not just my, my devices. I would think that, yeah, it would apply across the board. How does that speak to your relationship with your surgeons? I guess, once again, I, I think of these procedures happening in an OR or in some sort of intensive industry. I can't imagine, I, would, I could envision that they're not being as tight a bond between company and doctor since everything is always so harried and rushed. But I imagine you have found ways to develop relationships with your surgeons. Yeah, we're very close. They can't do what they need to do to treat their patients without us making those devices and generating the clinical data to prove that it's safe. Mm -hmm. So we're actually very uh, intimately connected with our clinician base. You know, about half our uh, procedures are scheduled, and those are aneurysms that are found serendipitously. You went in for a CAT scan or MR for some other reason, and we find aneurysms. Mm -hmm. The other half are ruptured. And then along with the acute stroke on the ischemic side. So the other half of the patients are not planned and they can come in at 24 hours a day. But our, our people go in in almost every single case. Our, our sales and marketing people get up at two in the morning, three in the morning, and they race in to support the physician as they treat the patient. Really? So we are very tight. And uh, so I think this year we had, in the last, say, 12 months, we've had 70 different doctors and to talk to test our products, to help us design products, design clinical trials from you know probably 15 or 20 different countries. So we're we're very intimate at the global level and very intimate at the account level with those clinicians as we design our devices. Do you have solutions for a aneurysm that has burst? Or are you primarily at the point where reinforcing the aneurysm so it doesn't burst? Yeah, it's a very good question. We we treat both ruptured and unruptured aneurysms. Mm-hmm. And if you're lucky enough to find the aneurysm before it ruptures, uh, we have very good treatments where we can treat coils and balloons or flow diverting stents, depending on the size, location, and, and kind of the nature of the aneurysm. But when, when aneurysms bleed, you have to move very quick. Um, about 50%, 45% die before they get to the hospital. Really? So the ruptured aneurysm side of our business is you have to move very, very fast. So the patient will come in, they immediately get them onto the table, and we use the same products, the same coils, the same flow diverting stents to treat ruptured aneurysms. You do have to be very careful because sometimes we have to give dual antiplatelet therapy. And so with a patient that's having a bleed, you can't give them those therapies. So we do treat the patient differently, but oftentimes the devices can be very similar. How do you differentiate your products from others in the field? I imagine there's just, there's a design that's, that's, there's a device that removes a clot. How many variables are there of that sort of device and and how do they differentiate themselves from one to another? You know, the hemorrhagic side can be very different than the ischemic side. Okay. Uh, On the ischemic side, the, the agency has, has recently reduced their thresholds. So their companies are no longer required to do clinical trials. They do all benchtop and other type of uh, requirements to meet the regulatory approvals. So there's more devices on the ischemic side. There's aspiration catheters and there's stent retrievers. The challenge that you have in the brain is depending on the size of the clot, the composition of the clot and the location of the clot mm-hmm. and determine what technique they may choose. Uh, we recently uh, just conducted what's called the assist trial, where we looked at three different techniques that are very different for moving clots. 
And uh, in those physicians' hands, they all proved to be very effective. So some doctors love to use a stent retriever. They'll put that up into the clot. It's self-expanding. They'll blow up a balloon. They stop the blood flow and they'll re retrieve the clot that way. Other doctors like to use a whole system where they have aspiration and a stent retriever and a balloon, and they kind of do everything together at one time. That's my favorite because when you watch it on the models <laughs> where you can cheat and you watch all that debris suck down into the system as they're moving the clot, it works very effective. There's other doctors that like to use just aspiration. They try to come up behind the clot and grab it and then try to aspirate it in. About 50, 55% of the time that doesn't always work. So then they'll take a stent retriever up and grab it and pull it down. So there's different ways to approach it. What we try to provide at striker neurovascular is we want to have the number one system in each one of those techniques. So if a doctor wants to start with aspiration and then convert to a stent retriever if needed, we have a system for that. If doctors want to have a balloon aspiration and stent retriever together, we have a system designed for that. Or just stent retriever alone, we have a system for that. So our strategy has been to be agnostic to technique, but provide the tools that work the best for what the physician wants to do based upon location and the size of that clot. And what does innovation in this space look like in terms of innovating on product design? Are you working, I imagine you're working with surgeons, getting their, their feedback, but what are you ultimately trying to do? Are you, are you working to get in smaller spaces? Are you working to create devices that are easier to handle? What are you working toward when you're coming up with new iterations of a product? Yeah, it's a really good question, Tom. And it's hard because to give you the, the dynamics, you know, we're operating generally through your leg for most of the procedures. And we're operating through a lumen that's an 016 or 018 interlumen. So about mm -hmm. the size of a pencil lead, five feet away through tortuous anatomy. So we've got to enter through that little spot there, the catheter there, and we have to have it come out at the other end up here effectively. So we have great challenges, but we're kind of in this golden era right now in neurovascular where we can design and build at these micro nano levels and we can mass produce now at these, these micro levels. And we can do clinical trials that show great outcomes. So at the highest level, it's got to be effective or that doesn't work. It's got to be easy to use or that doesn't work. That our, our clinicians are very demanding on both. It's got to work. It's got to be easy. And so we work a lot on trying to how do you compress things down and move them through those microcatheters and how they come out. So what we're doing on the ischemic side can be very different than what we're doing on the hemorrhagic side because of just the demands of those procedures. But we, how we differentiate is in those two areas, clinical outcomes and ease of use. And what is allowing you to, to create those smaller products? Is it, are, is it new materials, uh, new manufacturing procedures, both? It's both. It's all those things. And when I say the magic era, the golden era of neurovascular, you know, you have all these converging things happening right now. Mm -hmm. The materials, the raw goods, the materials that we can use now are, are micro in their sizes. If I were to take the inner membrane of our, of our target coil, the number one selling coil in the world, and if I were, were to put that around my body and hang it right here, you can't see it. Hmm. it it's too small. So that's wow. the level of which we can design and, and build that. But what's important is that we treat that patient the right way. And when we're done with the procedure, they have a good outcome here. And all we have to do is hold pressure on the groin. And we didn't have to, to go through the skull and come down this way into the brain. And that's really the, uh, the big win for our patients. And how do new technologies like AI or even robotics, do they, do they, will they play any, any role of all of this? And your description of how procedures are done, it, 
it sounds to me like it's very much still a, a surgeon, surgeon, like a Doctor Strange kind of cool surgeon technique. It's all in their hands. It's all in their abilities. Is technology going to help them in some way in the, in future iterations of these products? It most certainly will, uh, for sure. Now, it, it probably isn't. Some of the earlier robots are kind of hitting the, the stage now. They're probably not ready for prime time. Yeah. They go out, you know, three, four or five years, for sure they will be. And uh, so when you look at the conversions of imaging, which has gotten just amazingly strong, mm -hmm. and you look at artificial intelligence, and you look at robotics, and then you look at how we can design. So those four things are now converging. And I see it. So in the future, it will be there. Um, you know, maybe, like I said, three or four years out, five years out, but it won't be 10 years. And, you know, can you imagine if you're doing the procedure and you just spent uh, off a tough arch into a tough, you know, carotid angle and you just spent, I don't know, an hour trying to get access and you finally get up there. And for some reason, your wire lost position, you had to start over. Oh, yeah. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be fantastic to have a, a robotic assist device that had memorized the move that got you there? Yeah, yeah. It could repeat it for you. Then way out there, there's also remote opportunities with robotics, mm. where you could have a doctor sitting in Massachusetts, one of your great hospitals, and they're treating a patient in Brazil or Kansas mm -hmm. uh, with robotics. So that's, that's out there in the future, but that's probably further out. Right. And final question, it's a topic I've tried to avoid lately, but, but COVID. Curious as to, we're seeing numbers tick up again. That's why I mean, I'm, I'm bringing it up. But how did that impact your business, I imagine your folks still had to go in to work. They still had to be part of the, the treatment. If unfortunately, if we do see some, some rise in numbers again, how do you see that impacting your, your business going forward? You know, it, COVID did hit us many different ways. You know, and the culture at my division was we're all in on stroke and complete stroke care. And that's our only mission. That's our only focus. So that's all we're about. When you work in my division, guess what you talk about all day long? Stroke and all, and all of its many aspects. So when COVID hit, our physicians needed to rely on us in many different ways. First, our salespeople had to PP up to the full everything. So they go into those hospitals and bring the products in quite often for those procedures and be there to support our, our clinicians. Uh, and that was challenging. Sometimes we, we had doctors set up iPhones around the room so the reps could provide the right instruction or the training physician. Uh, I'll talk to you about a tool we, we developed because of COVID here to uh, better address that. But even you think in manufacturing, we can't turn off manufacturing. So we actually had to redesign Salt Lake City and Cork, and we built plexiglass stations at every step of hmm. the building process because and we had to provide different PPE for our team members that come in to build those products every single day. If we didn't keep building those products, when patients would come in, there would be no devices to treat them with. So we were hyper engaged with our clinicians, both in building, shipping, and providing coverage uh, during the cases. And if I could make one last little, little point, you know, cool. during COVID, when cases went down, everything went down, it, it was really sad. Uh, stroke patients stopped coming in. They were yeah. so fearful of coming into the hospitals. They thought they would get COVID and die that many patients languished at home having a stroke all around the world. And uh, that's the sad part of, of COVID. But as sales went down, it's really interesting. We got all the data. We took share during COVID. And when no one else was in the room and the, and the patients on the table, doctors used our products more often than any of our competitors. So we were better in every single quarter during the whole uh, pandemic era. And it, it gave me great uh, pride in our organization, the quality of our products and how our physicians see our devices. When they know they pull it off the shelf, they have high confidence it's going to work as designed. Interesting.
And it just occurred to me, I mean, are you seeing any correlation between COVID cases and a rise in, in strokes? I you know, there is. We saw some early and the, the, you, you COVID can attack the vascular system. Yeah. And I remember, uh, you know, usually like, for example, a clot is created in your heart and the valves are along the way in your carotids. And then the clot breaks off and it moves and you have an ischemic stroke. What we were seeing in some patients, thank goodness, rare, but the clots would form in the arteries. Hmm. So you would see bilateral ischemic strokes. Well, we don't see that in the normal course or history of the, of the disease. And a physician was telling me he pulled out the clot. And then as he stepped back on the pedal, he watched a new clot form. Oh, my gosh. And so that's serious business. Fortunately, we didn't see a lot of them, but it, but it can impact the vascular system uh, in some of our in patients that got COVID. Amazing. Well, fascinating conversation. I, I don't want to make you feel bad, but you, you definitely come off feeling as I, I'm speaking to a physician. You have that, that demeanor. So uh, I'm glad you found a home here in MedTech, but uh, I'm sure you would have been a fantastic doctor as well. You know, when I was a, when I was a young product manager at Boston Scientific, or even in sales, I, I was a peripheral rep, and I would set up the room for the peripheral case. But next door was this new neuro procedure where they had microwires and catheters. So I would set up my peripheral procedure, but I would go over and watch the neuro case. <laughs> the neuro doctors would say, "Do you have anything we can buy from you? Because you're here more than the <laughs> rep." I said, "All I have is this sheath." They said, "Okay, we're all going to buy the sheath for Mark." <laughs> but, but I fell in love with the, the procedure and the anatomy and the complications of it. And then later working in Watertown, when I, I caught rumor they were going to create a neuro business unit. This is no joke, Tom. I physically ran. <laughs> I physically ran to the president's office, knocked on his door and said, I want to be, the, I want to be your product manager for neuro. So I was Boston Scientific's first neurovascular product manager. And then I just kind of worked my way up through the system. I, I did different divisions along the way, cardiology and, and some different things, but I came back to neuro and it, I, it's just my passion. I love it. And I've dedicated the majority of my career to helping patients that are suffering from strokes. I like it. I can hear it in, in your voice and, uh, and uh, I'm grateful for the, the time you took to, to share your story with us. Thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, that is a wrap. Thank you again to Mark Paul for joining us on the Striker Talks podcast. Thanks, of course, to our sponsor, Resonetics, for supporting this episode. And thanks to you, our listeners, for joining us on this episode of Striker Talks. Please do us one more favor, would you? Would you please share this podcast episode on your social media channels? Let others know about the Striker Talks podcast. And while you're at it, while you're feeling good and doing good, please do follow and or subscribe to this podcast. Look for us on a podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You'll be able to follow this program so future episodes are sent directly to you. If you do follow this channel, you also receive episodes to our other Device Talks podcast. So lots of MedTech information coming your way. Again, subscribe or follow to the Device Talks podcast channel so you'll get future episodes of this Striker Talks podcast. Finally, please do connect with me on social media. I am Tom Salemi at Device Talks. You can find me on LinkedIn, Tom, S-A-L-E-M-I. I'm also on Twitter at MedTechTom. Would love to connect with you in either place or both. That's it. Once again, thanks to Mark Paul for joining us. Thanks to Resonetics for sponsoring. And thanks to you, our listeners. Please tune in next month. We'll have another great episode of the Striker Talks podcast waiting for you.